Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. If you haven't left a five-star review, please consider leaving a five-star review. I know I just said that without you having listened to the podcast, but that's where we're at right now. Yes, it's quarantine. Yes, quarantine sucks. But I got to talk with a couple of people that I think are very smart. And in this interesting time and space, we talk about books with uh, my friend Katie Mullins. We read The Dutch House in uh, our bookish club. So if you would read The Dutch House and you want to listen to this later, fine. If you just want to hear us talk about it, uh, that's cool too. And then at the end of this, I have an interview with Andalini's founder, owner, operator, Mike Bausch. Uh, Mike is in a very interesting time too in that the restaurant industry is just trying to stay afloat. And he talked about what he is trying to do with his business to try to make sure he can take care of as many people as possible while pushing the best pizza that I've ever had. I love Andalini's. It was a really cool uh, 20 minutes or so that I got to talk with him. Also, I want to take this time to highlight some of the restaurants in my hometown that could use your business. If you have the funds to patronize them, please. Uh, Kilkenny's Irish Pub is open from four to nine, seven days a week during this wild time. And they're offering up what I believe is an awesome deal for folks enjoying the curbside delivery service. You get a free kid's meal with each entree, half off all beer and wine, which is awesome. And my favorite, an additional 20% off for any person who works at a hospital or in the medical field. And all of these offers, the folks who own Kilkenny's Irish Pub acknowledge aren't going to make them any money. right? They're just doing this to try to, one, Give Tolsons an opportunity to enjoy good food, stay safe, but also employ their staff. Uh, curbside service delivery, you can call 918-582-8282. It's 918-582-8282. Or visit them at 1413 East 15th Street in Tulsa. Also wanted to talk about Ron's Hamburgers, which uh, has 18 locations, a bunch of which are in the Tulsa metro area, 13 of which. I got to talk with... Uh, Mark Bader, who owns the store at 71st and Mingo. Uh, it's, I mean, there's like 300 people that work for Ron's Hamburgers, and they're trying to keep all of their employees you know, paid and the bills paid. And you can take carry out at 918-250-7667. That is 918-250-7667, Ron's Hamburgers. Uh, please go see them, patronize them. Also, uh, go check out Travis Davison's Joints. They are Trey's Bar and Grill and the Cardinal Club. Both of those places are in the Vineyard Shopping Center at 108th and Memorial. Um, again, they are owned by Travis Davidson, who was one of the first advertisers on my Sunday sports talk radio show, Fight Me, with RJ Young, long leg Fight Me. It's also got chicken, dumplings, beef stroganoff. You can give it a call to the Cardinals Club if you are so inclined, 918 nine seven zero four seven six six or visit them on Facebook at Cardinal Club or at CardinalClubTulsa.com. Also uh Jay's, which is an awesome sandwich shop. They have uh tremendous hoagies. Sandwich is made from the freshest breads with fresh meat cut right in front of your eyes, your choice of cheese, some lettuce, some tomatoes, dressing of your choice. Throw down a little salt, pepper, oregano, and sweet peppers, and you have a sandwich that will knock your socks off. Jay's Original Hoagie, and you will enjoy it. I'm telling you, it's really awesome. 
Also, be sure to hit up Desi Walk. Be sure to hit up uh, Bohemian Pizza. I mean, there's so many restaurants in the metro for you to patronize and go check out. Um, Hideaway Pizza is still doing their carryout options. Please go see them. I mean, there's a number of places for you to check out. And if you know of a restaurant that you think needs a shout out, please hit me up on the Twitters at RJ underscore Young or on the Facebook profile page. I'm trying to answer everyone, get in touch with some of the owners and operators of these local restaurants and figure out the best way to help them get the word out that they are open for business and that they are trying to do whatever they can to get people awesome food and just stay afloat during this really wild and uh, somewhat scary time. All right, now let's talk with Mullins about the Dutch House. So this is a bookish podcast episode with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Katie Mullins, a.k.a. AKA Ruth. Uh, Ruth, her pen name is Katie Mullins. It's actually her real name, but I'm not going to get into Ruth. Katie Mullins worked as... Look... You know what? I'm just going to do this over again, and I'm going to do it like I would do it on Sports Talk Radio because it's much do more it. fun that way. I'm here for that. So I'm joined by Katie Mullins. Her work has ap- appeared in several journals, including Brevity, The Tulsa Voice, Hong Kong Review. She is from Pittsburgh, a Yinzer, and she graduated from the University of Pittsburgh where she won the Writer's Craft Prosody Contest for fiction. Uh, she's also on the editorial board for the Nimrod International Journal, which turned me down six times. Uh, Mullins, your thoughts? Hey, thank you for that introduction. That makes me sound um, like I've done more than I do. But <laughs> Oh, yeah, I need to add in there. Founding English teacher for Kip Tulsa, which is not a small thing. And she's really, really good at her job. I know this because I have tutored her children. And uh, her children are challenging. They're awesome, but challenging. I think they're great. They're wonderful. Um, yeah, that still makes me sound like I'm cooler than I am, though. I'm just sitting here eating mac and cheese. But anyway, thank you for having me on today. Uh, now now we can make this more like a phone call and talk about the Dutch house, which, uh, you know, like I've had the great fortune of being friends with a person who has spectacular taste in fiction and I suck at fiction, picking fiction like it was either Dutch House or I was going to pick up some nonfiction or like uh, Don Winslow's latest for which it's not coming out until like later this month but I'm also a Don Winslow fan and then she's like you like Ann Patchett and I was like yeah I like Ann Patchett she's like you want to go see Ann Patchett speak I was like are you are you kidding yes this was all pre-corona mind you pre-apocalypse right yes and she's like also I have this uh this copy of hardback the Dutch House, which is her latest novel, and she was kind enough to drop it off at my house. So I read it in like, what, three days, four days? How long did we take? Yeah, to read something this like that. Okay, it's it was an it was an easier read than I'm used to, but that might be because there weren't that many characters. Like the last Aunt Patchett novel I read was Commonwealth, and that felt like oh my goodness, yeah, that felt like it was just an entourage, just an ensemble. Are you supposed to keep track of all those people? But that was so much fun, though, right? Because oh, it was great, but there was a lot of people. But it, 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 that's I'm here for that, right? I'm I'm here for the novel that is too big to fail. That's okay, you know. And then we got this, and you have thoughts about this. So, how about you lead, and I'll follow. Sure. 
Yeah, this. So I was really surprised by this book because I feel like I feel like it's a very different style from it for Ann Patchett. Um, not the least of which because it's told in first person, which I, you know, reading the inside cover, it gives no sense that that's actually what's going to happen. Um, and so I found it really interesting that she decided to do this like really close first person narrative. I think that she's usually an expert at having third person and having rotating um, points of view, you know, where we go close third on one person and then we jump forward or backward in time to a different part of the family and we, you know, do close third on another person. And so it's very, it's constricting um, to do first person the way that she did. But I think that she did it in a way that was surprisingly, she pulled it off. She pulled it off. She pulled off a multi-generational novel in first person. So I, I actually thought that this book was sensational. I had some uh, issues with it. Uh, it took me just a little too long to situate myself in time and space, which I think is really important. Uh, you got to keep me grounded. You got to let me know where we're going, at, which she did. She did a good job of that. She did not always do a great job of telling me where we were. So True. I was trying to put into context the way things are, and we have this really interesting bit that she could not have planned where our you know, our, our narrator, if not our, not our protagonist, which we can get into in a little bit, but our narrator is, uh, went to school at the very least to be a medical doctor and never really understood whether or not he actually, you know, went and got the license. Doesn't sound like he did, but the, the idea of you're doing this because the person in your life who's in charge of your life is doing, is asking you to do this. Right, which mm-hmm. is very much an immigrant story of no, we, we came here so that you can increase our station, not so you can go do whatever it is you want to do. And I'm thinking about that now in the age of the virus, where healthcare professionals are our heroes in the way that we were looking at uh, police officers and even uh, the military around 9 11 and seeing how all of that works together, set in say uh, 1969, 1974 ish in there was interesting to look at, but also I wasn't, I don't know, man. I, I, I do know. I didn't like the protagonist. Well, I liked the protagonist. I didn't like the narrator. Does that make sense? I did. I it thought, does. okay. Okay. So uh, I have a couple of, I want to, I want to kind of hit on each point that you, um, that you went to. I want to circle back to the one about the grounding in time, because I think that's its own conversation. Um, but I really want to devote time to it. But as far as the, you know, the, the choices of the narrator, um, or the, rather the choices of the protagonist, who I think we can agree is the sister, uh, making the narrator go, you know, do medical school and, you know, this, this life is not your own, are also interesting because there's an extra layer to that, which is that the motivation that, this, that our narrator um, has and that our protagonist has to go to medical school is because of someone that they don't like. It's because of the stepmother um, who, you know, who married into the family who they're trying to get revenge for. And so it's almost, it's interesting that the trajectory of his life is one that's a revenge story that he didn't choose for himself that doesn't benefit him in any way. Uh, and at the same time, you know, it's like, it's this preset thing that, that is a very admirable profession to go into, especially like you said, in this, in this current age where we have <laughs> a desperate need for people with the skill set that our, our narrator has. Um, so I thought that was just a fascinating way to to shape this, especially also because the wife that he ends up uh, marrying and then, of course, later divorcing, which we find out very early on in the in the plot, um, is also for him going to be a doctor. So we have these two women in his life 
that have decided for very different reasons that they want his life to take a very particular track, one of whom because it's it's self-serving, she wants to be married to a doctor, and one of whom because it's purely based on revenge. I was wronged, and therefore I want you to go and get revenge by using up this trust fund to go into a profession that you don't want to. And he's a really absent character in all of that. He kind of is like at this, the pool of these three different women that have come into his life at different times in very different capacities. One is chosen family, one is blood family and one is family that was not chosen for him um that he or rather that he did not choose that was brought into his life anyway and he ends up almost this kind of absent person in all of it which is where i get where you're saying that you didn't really like him um because i don't know if i did either but it's kind of because i I perceive him as this kind of fluid swaying almost absence of a character in those moments where i i would rather see him do anything (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, and the more that he talks about Maeve, we're also colored to to like her. And I think that's interesting because we don't really get to pick apart Maeve, right? Which I think is the reason that we like her. Um, I mean, Yeah, the, we don't know her. Right, exactly. We never actually get to know her. And, and then I want to say in the last four, five, six pages of the novel, you know, the narrator comes to admit, hey, I was here just to tell my sister's story not to do anything else, right? And uh, his wife, the, this other woman who wants him to be a doctor in the worst way, Celeste, I also believe is trying to live her dream vicariously from, uh-huh. from the moment that they meet. I mean, who picks up a chemistry book and is mesmerized by it on a train? It's just right. not something you do, right? right. Uh, let alone organic chemistry, which is like its own language. <laughs> and <laughs> the idea that, you know, he would learn these skills just so that he could get from one place to another was also part of his story. And I'm, I don't like the father subplot here just because I have my own issues with fatherhood, uh, both in a, a desire and in how much of, I mean, for lack of a better term, yeah, patriarchy has to do with how we view the world because uh, dad's not a good dude. I mean, and that's kind of the thing. There's only like one good person here, and it's the person that we don't know. You know, it's, <laughs> it's Maeve, which is, yeah. is an Ann Patchett novel about family, to, to be quite honest. But also, uh, I just need to bring this up. I read novels with, that are hardback, or any book really, but um, in this particular case, without the jacket on. All right? So I'm going through this novel thinking about the portrait of this little girl who is painted and so much a big part of the, of the Dutch house. And then I put the jacket back on. I was like, ah, okay, cool. Got it. There, there she is. There right. She is. <laughs> right. And I thought that that was also uh, very well done. And as a person who understands how much a cover has to do with how people view a book, this in and of itself, I think did a lot of work because somebody really cared about Ann Patchett's latest novel to try to render the person who is, uh, written about in this book in this way. I thought that was interesting. Unless there's something I'm missing about how they just lifted a a painting from some other place. No, 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 you're right, I believe. Okay. Okay. Um, I do want to revisit, though, your the, the idea of likable characters, because I agree that Maeve is one of the only likable ones in this book. I don't think it's just her, though. I think that Norma and Bright, who we also don't get to know at all, but who come full circle by the end of this novel, and that we end up revisiting Norma and we see Bright's trajectory as far away from this house as possible i think that they are also likable i think that there's this really interesting thing of likability and almost like victimhood that is paralleled in this novel like we 
you know, we see Maeve, who is very much a victim of the fact that her mother has left. Um, we see Norma, who is very much a victim of the the way that her biological mother, Andrea, treats her. And same with Bright. Uh, even though we don't get to know any of them, they're likable. Because I, I would argue they're likable because they are in these positions where they were something was taken from them or something was lost or they did not ever fully have something. And yet they continue to manage to rise up and be be present and present and like almost almost idolized characters in these novels like we don't ever really get to know Maeve and yet she spends her entire life taking care of Danny and always puts him before her and never actually achieves anything and yet at the same time you know manages to kind of bring him into as close to a realized person as it seems like he's going to get and I think Norma's similar like she even though we don't see her for the majority of the novel when we revisit her it turns out that she's been kind of imprisoned in this caretaking of her her mother at the worst time of her mother's life, despite having a bad relationship with her in a way that I think is really profound. I think that it's a really interesting commentary on um, just the ways that our, our families and our relationships with them can both shape us. And also as a reader can warp like our, our views on how they are approaching their families can warp or change our perceptions of how we, how we feel toward them. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, Sandy and Jocelyn also, I believe, get thrown in there because despite being there for all of this, and that was really interesting to note, they were there from the beginning of of the parents to whatever yeah. it is that you know we're seeing at the end of this. And even, I believe it was Sandy that outlived Jocelyn. Um, she's, yes. Yeah, she's still there yeah. caring for his and... You know, uh, Fluffy, Fiona, she actually gets realized, like she gets rounded out. And that was, yeah. that was interesting because how often do we get to see service staff not just be the backbone of whatever it is that you're trying to build, but I thought that Anne did a really great job of, of trying to make those people important and germane to this story that they're telling. Even as Maeve seems to be holding everything together, I didn't know what to make of her of her diabetes though. Like how did, how did that actually factor into the story except to say, of course her brother was going to become a doctor, right? She has this debilitating illness and that, right. just, it just kind of fit as opposed to if a man just went straight into construction. I, I wondered about that too, because it feels really hollow and really shallow for Patrick to just attribute it to a device, right? Because it, right. it could yeah. be. I mean, it could be a device to get him to medical school. And it's also very much a device to show that Maeve is able to take care of everybody but herself, uh, which the only time that we ever see her not fully taking care of herself is when her blood sugar is too low or when she has like that injury that she gets that ends up causing what I'm assuming is blood poisoning as they're describing, you know, lines running up her arms. Uh, and I think that but it feels shallow to say that, you know, that this was purely a device to use to show that Maeve is altruistic and that Maeve is, you know, has it all together until moments she doesn't. But then when she doesn't, it's really extreme. But I don't know. I actually, beyond beyond that, beyond the Catalyst Medical School and the device to develop Maeve's character a little deeper, I don't know what other purpose it's serving. Um, I don't have a good answer. Which might be a failing of the novel, right? Uh, and, I mean, that's not a big thing. I, to, to the folks that are, are perhaps uh, new to this, novels fail at aspects all the time. That's what makes them a novel. Um, 
But oh yeah, yeah. I I just I wanted to point that out because I thought that there was going to be more to it, except to say how much emotion had to do with health, you know, and mm-hmm. and that I think is worth exploring deeper because when mom reappears in their lives, her health gets so much better, and when right. mom seems to disappear from her life, she dies. You know, right. and, and there'd be something to that. And even narrator speaks to that. It's like, look, everything in science tells me this is not true. And then I watched it happen with my big sister, who was the light of my life and the light of many lives. Yeah, it kind of almost brings this like folksy or fairy tale-ish ending, you know, where it's like we've heard, despite all the medical reasons why why there's no explanation for her death which we never get by the way because he refuses to autopsy his sister he doesn't want to know what happened to her but we kind of have this from the beginning we have this almost fairy tale setting where it's like this mother is coming and going and Maeve gets sick when she leaves and then is healthy when she comes back and they're steeped in this beautiful house that's larger than life and has is is kind of the the central point of the whole novel which I want to get to when we talk about time and when the mother finally does her final departure and leaves uh to do the worst possible thing, which is to care for the person that has harmed her children for the entirety of their lives. Um, it ends up killing Maeve. And so it almost adds this mythical element to it that I have, I have not decided yet if I like or not. I mean, I think that it's effective and I think that it sparks conversation, but just on a personal level, I don't know if I, if I like that, I don't know if I buy it. Like I, as a reader, I didn't tap into it. I like when the mother said she was leaving, I knew it was coming because it's been set up since, you know, page 10 or whatever, but it didn't, it didn't bring to me the kind of fulfillment of, Oh, and now we've arrived full circle that I think that I felt with other novels. So it's effective. I just, I don't know personally if I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. Well, that part, absolutely. I think you, you get right. I also really wanted to investigate Elna and her need to be needed because that's, that I think, uh, hits a lot of people in that, Hey man, uh, take care of your family that wants you and need you. Well, I don't think they want me or need me. Eh, Well, you're wrong. One and, and two, we're yours, right? The idea that you need to go over here somewhere, India, right? Uh, or, um, uh, the evil stepmother who is uh, suffering dementia, we think, right? We think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, probably. That is only going to inspire hatred from your children. And I was I was really, I was uh, in, interested in that because I feel like that story is is everywhere. Like Dick Gregory had like eight children and none of them ever saw him. And he would say, I can't, I can't affect change from my couch. And his kids would say, you can hear, <laughs> you know? Right. And I was, I, I really weren't wonder and worry about that because there's so many people even now who are giving of themselves and giving up their money. I mean, I, even in, in sports, right? I've watched over the last 24 hours, half a million dollars from Pink, half a million dollars from Bryce Harper, half a million dollars to each of the cities where Al Horford played in, to which I wonder, you know, are his children wanting for anything are their children wanting for anything does that make them more nationalistic uh in a sense or does that make them more patriotic in a sense and how that really corresponds to each of our families like i've i've said many times i i try to help whomever i can but my family 
is who I'm responsible to, not just for, right? My, my brunch group, uh, my girlfriend, her kids, my parents, that's my core group, right? That's my family. If those people need something, I need to be there first. So the idea that I would go down the street to take care of this person that any one of y'all hate, I can understand right. how that would just not just be, you know, something that you hate about me, but be demoralizing. And that I thought was really interesting for her to investigate. It's altru- altruism as it's most selfish, right? Like right. it's on the surface, it's this very pure, I mean, I think it's fluffy Fiona who says your mother was a saint, you know, like goes off and just does these grand works for people that she owes nothing to in a way that we as a society kind of kind of revere. We're like, wow, this is just incredible that there are people that go off and do this. But as, as Danny says, and as, you know, the book kind of brings it back to like, were these people hated by their families? Because it is, it does call into question, like is, is altruism at that extreme a very selfish act when you leave behind the people that, that you are responsible for that do arguably need you more than other people just because you you are the one that they that can provide things for them that nobody else can and so when you when you don't take care of them and you choose instead to take care of people that may in a in a utilitarian sense seem much more vulnerable but in a personal sense perhaps are not is it selfish is that a selfish thing to do are these people that make these grand worldwide gestures to care for people they know nothing about deeply selfish people at their core and that's that's a really fascinating question to bring up it's one that i i've never thought about as a person i've never i've never questioned that until this book when you hear you know the other the personal side of it the other side of it the my mother left to do saintly work and left me behind side of it oh man that's that is absolutely a question that i've been really running through my mind since i was a child um because one uh, my mother was she she was Catholic, right? Or it or yeah, was Catholic. And I got to know saints very early on. And I would have the same thought that the narrator had, which is saints as families must hate them. You know, it's like it's just hey, uh, cool, martyr. But you know what? I could have really used my dad. I could have really used my mom. That would have been nice. And I think yeah. about my grandmother, right? Uh, my grandmother gave up everything so that I could put a piece of paper into a box that the math says, like economically, doesn't matter, right? I do it because that's my legacy and that's what she sacrificed for, not because economically it's it's going to matter. I mean, I live in Oklahoma. It's a red state. I don't always vote that way. Um, and even if I did, I mean, the Electoral College makes it so that that doesn't really matter that yeah, much. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. But my mother remembers it like in detail my my grandmother walking 15 miles to try to find work for seven years and not having a job uh she remembers my grand my grandmother being away she remembers people she had to step over she didn't know in their house because my grandmother would open it up to people that were passing through to help with the movement and you know mom remembers not necessarily having her mom to the full extent to say nothing of you know my late uncle denny who was just a, a couple of years uh, older than my mom, who occupied so much time because, you know, for uh, putting it politely, he was a ne'er-do-well, right? And then my big cousin, who's in his 40s now, took a lot of my grandmother's time because my Uncle Denny's uh, girlfriend had kind of left him on her doorstep. So my mom 
more or less did not get the full extent of my grandmother because she was doing all these other things that are viewed as altruistic and they are, but you know, it's, it's up to each one of us to try to figure out where that line is. And when are you overextending, not yourself, but your family? And there's always a cost, right there. I think that we don't, we don't talk about it that way, but there is, there's, I mean, there's just <laughs> to use a cliche. There's so many hours in a the day. There's so many, you can only be one place at a time. Like there, even if you don't want there to be, there is a cost and that's, it's one that has to be weighed and it has to be weighed individually for every person. But you're right. It's, it's a matter of at what point does this become too much? And obviously in this book, this is the extreme, but the extreme is very effective in demonstrating these are the consequences of when it's too much. This is what it looks like. And this is what it does to people that you've sworn to care about the most, which is your children, your family, your people. I, I also like for me, uh, because I, I don't have like, biological kids and you know the ones that I do care for I'm more of a bonus parent for I think that parents of that have biological children get a benefit of a doubt that I will never get even as a stepdad uh because you know you get to say you know uh I'm your parent or at the very least let's say you do something terrible like you leave your children to go to India and you don't reappear until they are very much in their 40s and, and early going into their 50s in the case of, of Maeve, who I think was 48 at the time, which, again, is yep. a time where she decided to timestamp something. And I was helped by it. But uh, <laughs> yep. in doing that, I was going, man, I would never get that benefit of the doubt. Never. Like, I can't be abusive to someone and them uh, if they don't have any blood relation to me, want me back in their life for any reason. And I resent it, yeah. you know, it really makes me mad because I, I know how fragile that relationship can be. But I also know that you have some this infinite wide berth to make mistakes just because those children share your DNA. And I've never thought that was fair, but I think that's because, you know, I'm in the position that I am. And I, parents might get upset with me. I don't care about it because it's how I feel. You have a built-in privilege there and it's okay to acknowledge oh, yeah. it. You know, uh, but also you take advantage of it from time to time. And that's what a privilege is. No, it's true. It's very it's something we don't talk about at all. But it's, it's completely true that there is there's privilege and benefit of the doubt granted to biological parents across the board. I mean, if this story had been reversed and it was Andrea, the stepmother who had left the kids and their real mother had, you know, somehow reentered their lives and then. 50 years later, Andrea comes back from India as a step-parent and decides that she wants to re-enter Maeve's life. This story would read very differently, and it would feel very differently, and people would not be as disposed to... I mean, I didn't like the mother throughout it, but I at least was willing to be like, okay, well, if it's good for the kid, You know, I, I kind of, like, did what Maeve did and did what Danny did, which is like, well, if it's good for the kids, then I guess I guess it's allowed. But this were reversed. I would not have read it that way, and that's because of that, the cultural way that we we view non-biological parents in a cultural way that we bias against them. It's, it's true and it's ingrained and we don't talk about it, but it's very real. I mean, there's not a, a story that would, that would read this way with a step parent or even just a, like a family friend stepping back in, you know? I mean, I think that like Fluffy's kind of the closest example of that. Cause she comes back and she takes care of Danny's kids, but we're still kind of wary of her because she did hit this kid once and it wasn't her kid and she got fired because she hit this kid. And so even 
even though many, many years have passed and, you know, she's very clear that that was a terrible mistake and she explains why it was a, a freak circumstance and one of the worst moments of her life, you're still cautious. And I, I, it's because she's not biological, which is not to say you wouldn't be if she was. It's just to say that we do grant benefit of the doubt to blood relatives. Yeah. And I, I'm never, act, I don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to make peace with that uh, for the reasons that you, you just said. And anything that complicates that narrative, people usually don't like, right? Uh, then you get the yep. question about whether or not you're a good person. And, you know, the, the truth is everybody has, <laughs> has their troubles with that. Um, let's move to time because yes. the Dutch house itself is constant, Right in a way yes. that I find um, both revealing and off-putting, because it it I, it right there with you. Uh, so like, I'll you go ahead and then I'll follow. Yeah, I think so. At first, I, I like could not figure this book out because I've never been part of a book that goes into insane flashbacks that span you know forty year time frame with just like a little page break, like not even a new chapter, just like a a little blip in the text to let you know that you're now somewhere else. Um, and she takes her time getting into it each time that it, it switches. Like she'll, you know, she kind of sets these two up in their car sitting in front of the Dutch house and you have no idea where in time and space they are. You just know it's, it's after they got kicked out because obviously this pattern only starts after they get kicked out, but you don't know at all. Like they could be in high school. They could be in college. Maybe it could be, uh, you know, off, at her job, he could be off in medical school or he could be po like he could be anywhere. And she takes a while to stamp it for you. Um, and even still, there were times that I like I, I knew where they were, but then I would forget because I'd been reading a different section. So I was like, go back and figure out, well, how old are they in this in this chapter? Um, and at first, I really didn't like it. I was very thrown by it. and I was very annoyed by it. I was like, you could just tell a linear story and it would be fine. But I looking back at it and especially after I finished this book I went back and I looked at the first couple pages and I looked at the first moment that they're parked outside the Dutch house uh which comes very early on but we don't know why they're not in the house or what's happened I really like it I feel like it it kind of creates the in the same sense that these two characters feel very pulled back to the home that they can't go into and they feel very compelled to you know to even though their lives have advanced they kind of exist in this stasis of like well we always return here I really liked that aspect in the book too. It did make me feel like as a reader, I was kind of constantly pulled back in the same way that they were. And the only way she accomplishes that is by telling it in a nonlinear way. Um, I mean, I think this is, you know, it's up for debate whether or not that's the most effective way to do it. But it did, to me, it was really, that was a powerful thing, which is also, I want to talk about once I hear, you know, as we go back and forth on this, I also want to talk about the ending because I, I have some objections to that based on this idea that the Dutch house is this kind of centerpiece around which the universe evolves. But yeah, I personally, I actually really liked it, but only once I finished it. Yeah. Uh, she's flexing. She's doing a, She's doing a parlor trick, which is fine. You know, I understand it. Like David Foster Wallace does plenty of parlor tricks and those are cool to watch. And when your editor lets you get away with them, all the better. But if I tried to move time and space like this in uh, a creative writing class, I would get eviscerated. I would get, oh, yep. I would get destroyed. You know, it's like, no, dude, you can't do that. Be like, no, I just, you know, I went through in the rewrite and I added some flourishes and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice. Like, nope, it's not. These are all the ways in which 
it sucks. And yep. these are all the ways in which we can't follow. And these are all the ways in which you are misleading the reader. And hey, have you checked your tenses on this? Because that, yep. that, that I mean, but also creative writing classes as a rule suck. Uh, because, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, I poked at Nimrod, but like, it's true. I, I, I submitted nonfiction essay to Nimrod that becomes a book uh, project later. And it's fine, right? Everybody's got a different taste. But I didn't appreciate that she was doing these flourishes without just saying repeatedly in some places, 1969. Because when she did, I was like, cool, now I can wrap my entire head around what was going on in that time. Especially as there's this little bitty conversation about women going through medical school and men going through medical school, right? And there's, uh -huh. there's little bitty conversation about Danny, the narrator, being able to more or less take advantage of the situation that is Celeste. Because right. Celeste so wanted to be attached to a doctor in some ways, I think, because, you know, she couldn't do it herself. And the way that Maeve and Celeste come to not like each other almost as soon as Danny gets married. And I'm going, OK, that's a little convenient. But also what what's so wrong with her being his wife now? You were bullish on on her being his girlfriend and then. You're not really sure who's telling the truth there because as we go through this novel, we come to understand this is all just Danny's point of view. And he is wary of his own memory to which I'm going, hey, look, you cannot play with time like this and tell us that we can't trust a narrator that you've never actually put in any kind of tool or device to let us know is untrustworthy to begin with. I got issues with that, Anne. I got issues. I hear you. I'm also, I, I'm laughing because I agree with, I mean, this would be eviscerated in a creative writing class. Like I can just picture a professor being like, pause, unscramble it, tell the damn story, you know? Um, but I, so I, I hear you, but I also, for me that added a level of just enjoyability, like as far as like literary critique, I think that, you know, this is very valid because there's, it, it creates gaps and holes, but as far as enjoyability, I almost found it like a form of character development with Danny that I appreciated because I, I don't know. I just enjoy when I, you know, I'd be like chugging along and it's like, he's having this memory back to a time in high school when he was, he had just come out of his first year of boarding school and they're sitting there that summer. And he's like, so that'd be the summer of 69. No, wait, 68. And I was like, Oh, Danny, you know, like in a way that I don't know, to me, it made him a, a character. Maybe this is, this is just personal taste, but I just, I found that enjoyable. I mean, I, I, it made it harder to read and it definitely meant that there were times that I was lost, but there were also times that I just found myself almost laughing at it. Like it was almost comedic that he, in the, in the process of trying to tell this story about his sister, which he gets very sidetracked from multiple times and, you know, can't keep a, a through line to save his life. He's like sitting there in his own head squabbling about years while Ann Patchett as a, as a writer is trying to ground us in time. I just, I, <laughs> Maybe it's just because I teach high school and I'm used to like hearing stories like this, but I was just like, oh, Danny, dude, like <laughs> get it together, man. Um, which I don't know. I found it. I found it funny. Maybe it isn't the right reaction, but I found, I found it funny. Well, and, and you know, it wasn't so off putting that we could not follow the story, but you had kind of mentioned this when uh, we're battering around what we were reading, uh, you know, in a, in a brunch conversation in that, hey, you can't just like fly through this novel. It's they're they're a little bit tough, and mm -hmm. it this is you know Anne's tough in a different way. She's not tough like 
you know, old English or downright in water, even Shakespeare. She's tough in that if you're not paying attention, you will miss something. I mean, she, yep. she demands a close reading because of these flourishes uh, and, be yeah. and because these characters will reappear later on almost definitely, especially if they have a bit of a focus in like the first 20 pages. Like Fiona was an early was, was an early tip, right? It's like, OK, this person somehow is going to be germane to the story that she's telling. And that's that would be right. what you come back with in your creative writing classes. Tell me where you were lost in the story and tell me why this story does not make sense to you. Tell me how your brain did not put it together linearly because that's what we eventually end up doing, right? And throughout the reading, you're putting it together in your head in sequential order in a way that she already knows, but she's also trying to make larger points within her points, which is where you can get kind of lost in, in the literary versus commercial aspect of fiction. It's like, hey, what, what is, what's the point? Is the point to tell me an entertaining story or to try to teach me something? Because not a whole lot of people actually want to be taught a damn thing, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to reading something. Like the very act of reading something is difficult, you know? Like unscrambling words, going through language, understanding dialogue. She doesn't always assign who's talking which is fundamental right and i'm like yeah and that you know uh some, some of this is envy right some of this is jealousy in that if i try to do this and i try to do it with this press and i try to do it with an editor i'm sure she had i'd get screamed at and right you know i wonder how much of her her legend at this point if i can use that word is yeah is associated with her writing because you know i i work harder at criticism i guess with uh people i know are good <laughs> because it can it can stand up it's okay right and patch mm -hmm. is not gonna be off because as i said hey I, I i disagree with parts of this book as opposed to like um mostly dead things i'm not not very into critiquing that book though um there are problems with it as well so i i wonder how much of that was also just layered on top of me because i have such an affinity for Anne's work right no, I'm, I'm right there with you, too. I think that, I mean, part of the, the fun about pulling this book apart is that it can withstand it because she, like having read a decent amount of contemporary literary uh, literary work that does not have this kind of legacy or this depth to it, you know, she's very deceiving on the surface, especially in this book when it's in first person. Mm. The prose is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to digest. But then when you actually start getting into what the messages are and what the characters are doing and the complexities of their relationships and their the relationship to the world and it's like it's it becomes this kind of monumental masterpiece in a way that it is really fun to pull apart because it can withstand it because at the end of the day this is a a masterful work of, of fiction that you know we can sit here and poke and prod it all day and it's going to continue to be a masterful work which is something that not a lot of contemporary authors are able to produce and certainly not newer authors i mean you mentioned you know um, mostly dead things which is a, a very very new book and there are there are many others that I've been reading that are like debut novels. You know, it just, it doesn't have the same legacy behind it of like this, where you've got behind you, you know, state of wonder and Belcanto and Commonwealth. And it's like all of these great, almost these great houses in themselves. She's built these entire, these castles. And if you want to go through and like, look at where the bricks are chipped, it's like fun because the thing itself is gorgeous. And it also makes it attainable. And, yes. I, and that, that I think is, uh, is important to note because uh, as you note uh it is a masterwork and it's awesome to be able to watch Rembrandt 
actually go to work and produce something in your time, right? In your space, mm-hmm. in a place where you're living. Um, it's one of the great regrets of me just touching down in Nashville, like, what is it, last year? And I just didn't get to go to Parnassus, right? I just didn't have time. But that is what makes it something that you could still achieve is you could look at it and be like, okay, that's a brick. This is a castle, yeah. but that's a brick. And you know what? This wall, I could have done this wall a little bit better or she could have done this wall a little bit better. And then you look at the castle and you're like, I can't build that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, you know, um, I, I would do this thing uh, years ago, like before when, when li- life is binary now, right? Basically before 2016 and after 2016 for reasons that have yeah. nothing to do with politics for me. But I would do this thing where I would really uh, try to pick apart people who, who wrote and and I could see things where I was like, okay, why does this person actually have this foundation to write on top of? Because they obviously aren't that good. And then you would look at an Ann Patchett and be like, I'll, I'll never be that good. And that's what makes mm-hmm. her, you know, for me worth reading is I can give myself the freedom of quite honestly not competing with her. You know, it's right. like, no, she's, she's just going to be over there. Some of us have this. Some of us don't. This is fine. I get to enjoy it. And that's how I feel about sports, quite honestly. I, I feel comfortable watching LeBron James play basketball and uh, because I know there's I can't do that. And that's okay. I get to watch that person do that. Um, did you want to follow up on that? you want to go to a different point? Um. I don't, yeah, I don't think I have anything else to, to follow up on. I just think that, yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's really – she's in a, a league of her own in a way that's really, really fun to, to pick apart um, just because it's, it is so much in a league of its own and it's happening in our time. And it's, I mean, this book came out, what, like a few months ago, like she literally just did this. This was like her, her past year or a couple years or however long it took her to write this. I mean, that's wild. This to me reads like something that, you know, you're going to find in a literature class in 20 years as part of the canon um, or at least some of her work. If not this one, I'm sure, you know, Belcanto will find its way in there or maybe already has in some classes. Because it's just, they're just masterpieces. I want they're contemporary. I want to talk about the architecture of the house itself. Um, yes. For which this novel gets its name. I thought there was a lot to pick apart in there. And uh, I'm not really a person that is really big on the description of a, of a space and in work. I just, I sometimes think it's overdone and it's overwrought and, it's, again, your way of flexing. Be like, no, nah, man, push the story forward. I don't care about how the banisters look. I don't care about how wide or not wide the kitchen is unless it is germane to you pushing the story forward. And with this particular novel, the house is the novel, right? Mm-hmm. And I wondered what there was to glean about it except how people interacted within it. There are certain parts of it that absolutely are important, like maid's room, right? And, and going up and down stairs, but outside of that you have the portrait and then the fascination with how the thing is built to begin with right so I was I didn't exactly know what to do with the house except to say it is the jumping off point for everything and it is the reason for which most of this novel is propelled forward but after perhaps the first 50 pages I wasn't I wasn't sure what to make of it except that perhaps it was just another character that you needed to to check in on i so this is interesting because i think this is where a split in our discipline shows because 
in nonfiction, it's like, hey, don't spend time talking about the banister. Tell me what happened. But in fiction, specifically in literary fiction, where I find my joy, because um, I am one of those people, like, I, I will read all day about your description of some tiles on floors. Like, I just, I eat that up because I think it is unbelievable. And it's so much fun for me to have a world built first and then proceed through the story or even a world built around me and then proceed through the story. Um, there's a writer right now whose name is David Wade, who I went to school with briefly. Um, and he, he is just like the master of this. I mean, he just had a piece published in the Kenyan Review that he just goes into detail about this church that this baptism is taking place. And I just like, I, I absorbed, like that was my, my whole thing. Um, and, you know, is it essential to this moving the story forward? Eh, maybe, but I just, I love like the stained glass windows. And so for me, first of all, just as a description, like I, I love the description of this house. I would read about this house all day long. And if the characters never went anywhere, I'd be cool with that. I do think though, that there are devices in it that come back later that are really interesting. Like they talk about how you can see straight through from the front to the back, but then it turns out that as the characters continue to go back and revisit this house, it actually is not nearly that transparent because you have to get close to it to be able to see it, see through it. And so what they once took for granted, which is this idea that you walk up to the house and you can see everything that's going on in it all at once from the street, you actually can't. And so even though they know that this house has transparency and that if they got close to it, they would know what's going on behind the, the door that's been shut for them because they're no longer allowed to go back. They don't get close enough to do that. And so it's this bizarre, like, you would have answers if you stepped in closer, but they're not willing to do it because of complex reasons, which I think speaks to the dynamics of their family as well. Like, would they have more answers about their father or their mother if they just leaned in closer, but they don't ever get close enough to even find out if it still is transparent or not. Um, I think that also there's this kind of parallel, right. Of like when the father dies and then Maeve's room is moved and like he dies because literally gets a heart attack going upstairs and then Maeve moves to a room where she has to ascend more and more flights of stairs like it's just there are like moments like that where the house is used as a way to draw parallels between an event that happened in the book separate from the house and something that's happening within the house that I I really appreciated um and there's kind of this mystique of the the Van Hobeeks and we've like who I, I think I just said it wrong. She gives a pronunciation guide, and I didn't oh, pay attention to it. Hobex, Hobex, Hobex. Okay. No, yeah, no I, 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 I did appreciate that. Right when she gave a pronunciation in the very beginning, I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> that was like some full-on J.K. Rowling being like Hermione, Hermione. You know, like, right, right. <laughs> really taking time to be like, stop messing this character up. Um, but I just, I, I don't know what the deal with them was exactly, but I. I like the idea that this house that is the central point of these, these characters lives is technically, it doesn't even feel like it's necessarily their own. Like they have this, this portrait of these people in there that they don't know. Um, and Andrea leaves that portrait up and she doesn't know them either. And so it's like, it's almost like everything in this, this house is borrowed in the same way that a lot of aspects of their lives are borrowed. Like they, you know, he kind of, Danny goes and gets his medical degree, but it's like not permanent because he does something else. And, Maeve has this room that's hers, but that's not permanent because she ends up moving on. And like Maeve has this portrait of herself that they go and get from the house, but that's not permanent because it turns out that it actually looks a lot like May, which is Danny's daughter. And so they give the portrait to her and it's not, it's like everything is borrowed. And I, so for me, like the, the house accomplished kind of threefold things. One, that I think the structure, it was just beautiful Two, I think that it was really good at being a, a parallel to other things that were happening externally. 
And three, I did, I felt like kind of created this sense of unease throughout the novel of like, there isn't really a home because even the place that they keep returning to and calling home never felt like theirs as I was reading it. We're going to agree to disagree on the description of the house. <laughs> Um, but but the, the, the idea of things being borrowed, I think, is interesting because even even the way they, they got that house, right, it, was, it wasn't built for them. It was something that Danny's father, Cyril Conroy, uh, had secured after mm -hmm. penny pension. And I, right. al I also love the shock of, you know, a wife who believes that she is doing the Lord's work by pinching every penny while they live on this base while her husband tries to make ends meet and her husband is like no 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 we're just we're just saving i just didn't right. tell you and now i got you a house and now i got you a car and what she appreciated was not this building of permanence that she could never let herself have but this vehicle of mobility that could allow her to go as she pleased, which I thought was perfect. Mm -hmm. I thought that ended us of itself is perfect and borrowed and, and time and space and moving. Now let's get to the to the end because I know you got some feelings about this, especially the way things just go the way that May yes. believes they're gonna go. Yeah, and, and that becomes what the story is, which I I kind of think is a wild way to critique magical thinking. But she's there. The house is bustling. Everybody's at the Dutch house. And she has this really great relationship with her dad, whom I'm not sure deserves this great relationship with this really remarkable woman, but deserves to figure into it because it's her da his daughter, you know? And that's mm -hmm. that in and of itself, I was going, man, when do I get that lucky? You know, it's like, <laughs> come on. Like your, your kid is just your kid. And that's awesome, right? Like, yeah. like he didn't do much. Celeste, if anything, I believe, needs all the credit for who May becomes. And Maeve, even to a degree, because that gave her an auntie to look up to. But yep. Danny's just kind of there. Yeah. I, I actually want to back up even a little further, though, because I think this novel went off the rails when the mom came back in. Oh, yeah. That, like, I, I did not. I mean, so the scene is that Maeve is sitting in the hospital after her heart attack. And, you know, Danny walks in, acknowledges this woman, looks vaguely familiar. And then it's like, bam, it was my mother. And suddenly she is there and she is immovably there and she remains there until she leaves to take care of Andrea. Uh, and I just, to me, that was, that was like a moment where I was like, whatever direction this book was supposed to go, that was not it. To have her show up in that manner and be reaccepted that quickly. It just, it didn't, I was jarred out of the reading, which is something that's pretty rare. I think when I, I mean, I tend to be a reader that like really sinks in and I just, I lose myself in the world and I'm just there. And I was, I was kind of yanked out of it in a way where I was like, wait, what? So between that and then, yeah, this kind of bustling ending of how, how things kind of come full circle with May, I was like, I don't know, whatever we were careening toward that we started at the beginning of this novel, this feels, parts of it feel inevitable, parts of it feel very contrived. Like Maeve dying because her mother's gone feels inevitable. But Maeve's mother waltzing back into their life for three chapters and then waltzing back out just as easily feels contrived. I wondered if this was Patchett actually trying something new. I wondered if this was because like all of our training would lead us to believe that you don't you don't make that move. Right. You don't bring this mother in who is very much being able to live off of this mythology that is being built around these two characters who are driving the story forward, Danny and Maeve, 
and you use that device to propel you through the rest of the story, right? Uh, we've, mm -hmm. we've just been conditioned to understand that and to think about mom in that way. So the reintroduction of her, I thought, was perhaps, uh, I mean, a writer trying something new and then actually sort of pulling it off, sort of, by the way that uh, Danny is speaking about her because you also get a little bit more into him and you become to sympathize with how he feels about his mom because he's, he's basically proven right. You know, he was proven right not to trust this woman or to trust any memory of her and to trust his father's reading of her in a way that we weren't able to really trust Cyril on anything because didn't really know the guy. I mean, really didn't know him. Like, he's just hollow, just over there. So much so that people forgot that he had this drawer full of quarters and that was wedged in there. Mm -hmm. And yet I forgave, I forgave the reintroduction of mom because I said, oh, that was unexpected. And if it's unexpected for you or I, I genuinely believe nobody else saw it coming either, which is, for me, a good story, right? If you cannot see a turn, that's good. If I am pre predicting what you're going to do next, that's bad. Now, sometimes yeah. a trope is a trope, right? You have to follow through. You have to follow through with that. Um, but this went from being perhaps a hero's journey in the beginning, I thought, uh, where you are having this very, uh, this, this, this character who is chasing their father, which is a familiar story, one of the oldest, to, oh, let's, let's reintroduce everybody but dad and see what, what you do with that. And I was going, oh, okay, cool. Haven't actually seen that before. So that was why I think it, it, it landed well for me. Interesting. I actually, so I haven't thought of it that way. Um, also because I did worry she was going to come back. I, when they first mentioned her, uh, like a lot earlier when he's talking to Fluffy and Danny has this memory that, Oh, I think I actually saw my mother. I was worried she was going to come back. And so when she did my, my gut reaction was to be like, no, she did the thing I was scared she was going to do. But I'm wondering in light of what you're saying, if that was a, a thing that I kind of built myself that I didn't need to do because you're right. It is, it's unpredictable because it's not done. That's just, that's just isn't something you do. You don't leave a character absent all novel and then whip them back in in the last 50 pages and have them shake it. Like this, again, this is creative writing workshop would throw this out. They'd be like, take the mother out. Don't make that move. That was the wrong, you know, I can just picture like my professor saying that, but you're right that it is a new move and a, a novel, <laughs> a novel move to do it. And it, it does work. I mean, it, it has its, right. This is more like chips in the, in the wall, right? Like I, it doesn't work perfectly. It's not flawless. It's not executed with the same kind of silky finesse that a lot of other parts of this novel have to them, but it does, it doesn't destroy it in the way that I think it could, which is a remarkable feat to pull off that there right on. It, it doesn't destroy it. It doesn't necessarily make it stronger, but it, it doesn't take it apart either. Which means that, you know, if it doesn't break, you can do it. And I was, <laughs> seriously, like, sometimes that's, right. that's what it is. Because, you know, especially with novels, uh, I don't know your feeling about it. Because I, I tend to believe your strength uh, right now lies in short stories. And, and mine lies in novels, which is why I'm more partial to novels, I think, than short stories. Because I, I have a hard time writing them. But you'll get to this point where you're, you know, perhaps... 50,000 words into something you thought was going to be around 80 to 90,000 words. You're going, oh, crap. What am I doing? Where am I going? Have I just 
have I just built have I just built a wall for myself that I can't write myself out of? It's almost like playing Minecraft and <laughs> you're in survival survival mode and it's like, oh crap, I have been doing this part of it for too long. I forgot to go feed myself or go get other supplies. And maybe she hit that. This is one of the reasons why I would I can't wait to hear her speak about this novel. Because if she did, and I'm right to think that she just decided to make a leap and trust her her talent and her creativity to bear out in the end, that's awesome. If this, yeah. if this was contrived from the beginning, I'm still not going to be disappointed because that's that's a hell of a move to contrive at the beginning. But either way, I, I'm willing to look at her and be like, eh, you're a maestro. It'll work. But I wonder if she had that feeling of doubt where it might not have worked. Yeah, that's, I'm actually really excited for the same reason because I really want to hear. I really want to know if this was contrived from the start. I mean, she the one thing she doesn't set in motion from the very beginning is the mother coming back. She sets in motion the mother leaving and the, the consequences of that. But unlike every other character who we sit with for a very long time, the mother's this wild card. Like she's not even a huge focal point of this novel. Like every other character is considerably more influential than the mother until the end. So yeah, I'd be I'm fascinated to hear what she's gonna say about it. I I can't imagine this was a thing that she built from the beginning. But if it was, I guess that makes it all the more impressive. Because if you're writing toward this and planning for it and then still pull it off, I think that's equally as impressive as as, you know, hitting your wall and deciding, I guess I'll just try it and, you know, having it work. I think either way it's it's a different but remarkable feat. Is there something you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance to to bring up? I think we've covered most of the things that I was really fascinated okay. by on this. Um, yeah, we've kind of talked through the the major moves, I think, and also just the major – oh, God, here's the English teacher in me – but the major themes of this novel. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to call them that because, you know, that's a it's a, a cheap high school way to describe something that's very complex, actually. Um, I always tell my kids, like, you can't – a theme of a novel is not love. A theme is like the way in which love, you know, complicates our future really or whatever. But I think we've talked through most of them. How about you? I think we hit them. Uh, I, I, uh, May. Uh, yeah. I wanted to talk about May and the way that this novel ended. Um, because, you know, she's obviously a Hollywood star and she's very much throwing the kinds of parties that her aunt had told her about. Right. But if you needed someone to absolutely believe in or think, believe that something is going to, it's going to work out for someone, I thought it was interesting that Anne gave us that, right? That, that Patrick gave us that, that you could believe in May and you could, you could see from her that if you will it into existence, it will be. And I was going, that's not true for anybody else in this novel. And <laughs> I also feel like yeah. that's, that's life, right? We know those people. We, we know plenty of people for which it just – you weren't lucky. Like that's the part of life that I think most people get upset about and, you know, I've tried to make peace with myself. One, to be content is really difficult, um, especially when you're trying to achieve more. I mean that's my 20s, right? My, my 20s are mm -hmm. all anger because I just wasn't lucky. You know, I, I had to work through school. I had to pay for school. Uh, I had to sleep out of the car. I wouldn't get this job or that job. I would get turned down for this gig or that gig. Uh, none of my writing got picked up. I kept all 1,200 rejection letters and whatnot. And here in my very early 30s, I'm going, ah, man, some of this is luck and that sucks. 
You know, bad luck and good luck, chance. But you can't get lucky or have chance without doing some work on your own, but also without having some luck from your family. Like, yes. May, May gets to be May because her dad is her dad, her mom is her mom, and they have this great foundation for her to jump off of in a way that, let's say, kids that were growing up in the Robert Taylor homes did not. And making peace with that and understanding that, you know, privilege in this way is not something for you to to say you achieved in spite of. It is for for you to say, yeah, I got lucky. Um, I'm happy that I got lucky. Uh, I also acknowledge that I had did a little bit of the work here. And I think mm-hmm. that that's interesting to, to unpack because, you know, remember when Lena Dunham was a big deal because she got girls before she was like 30. She was like 28. Yes. Yeah, and and all mm-hmm. of the talk was, why her? Why now? She hasn't done anything, and she'd be like, "Well, I'm, I'm qualified for this. I'm I'm talented enough to do this. I don't have the experience, but I also haven't been living that long." And that's something that we would get told all the time. As a matter of fact, I had professors be like, "Don't try to write fiction until you're 40." Yep. What do you mean? Don't try to write fic? What What are you talking about? <laughs> I pl- I yeah. plan to be in the book number nine by the time I'm 40. And like, no, you don't have a left life experience to which that's not always true, right? Uh, some of us have had much more go on in our lives than others, <laughs> quite honestly. And I thought that that was, maybe that was a critique or maybe that's just me reading a little bit too much into a character that I thought had a lot to do with the novel, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so a couple of things. One, I'm thinking about that Virginia Woolf quote that's like, you can't ever fully experience a complete emotion about something in the moment that it's happening. You have to like look back retroactively to fully understand it. Um, just in, you know, return to your point about like, you won't write anything good until you're, you know, 30, 35, 40. I've heard all those numbers. I've heard 50. Um, just God, because you don't, 50. You know, <laughs> right? Like, that's, I mean, that's the age Anne Patchett is now. Um, we're close to it. She's a little over 50, I think. Um, but, you know, it's it's a it's frustrating because you hear that and you're like, what do you mean? That's you know, I've lived a lot, too. But I do think there's something to be said for even with experiences, you've had a lot of having them kind of mature and age and getting that outlook, which I think is something that may lacks, which is part of why she's able to be who she is, too. Like she's young, but very, very lucky and has worked a little bit, but not a lot, but has, you know, achieved exactly like she's exactly where she wants to be. And I think that her youth comes forward in the end of this novel because it's clear that she both doesn't have a wealth of experience to draw from as far as understanding her privilege, but also doesn't even have the the age or the hindsight to be able to look back and say, oh, this is what I was given and this is what I worked for. You know, she kind of gets to be this very carefree, fun, the, the kind of character that we all yeah, wish that we that we could be, right? Like I want to be lucky and carefree and have things handed to me and be so lucky at all the things that I don't even quite realize that that's what's going on. So she's a, an interesting character to end on for that reason. Cause you're right. She's the only one in the book like that. I mean, we've seen, you know, Sandy and Jocelyn are both working people who have served Danny's family their whole lives. Same with Fluffy. We got the mom who essentially took that, the same kind of privilege that May was handed and, and tossed it to go be selfishly altruistic. We got dad who built it and sat on it and doesn't ever really give us, perspective on that we've got Maeve who's very content living as if she doesn't have that behind her and we got Danny who has it 
you know, cashes it in, goes to medical school and then decides that he wants different. And so it's like, I think that there are pieces of each of those characters reflected in May, but she ends up being the lucky, like the character at the end that can just kind of be carefree in the way that I think Patchett is suggesting that other characters could be if they had been given everything that she had, every piece, because every character is missing one of the pieces that she has, whether it's a supportive family or, um, a steady, reliable income or, uh, you know, both, both parents, some capacity involved in her life and not off doing mysterious things and, you know, never heard from again. Like she, she, I think is the kind of, is the realization of what the best of us and also the worst of us look like, right? Like the best of us when we are given everything and have everything behind going for us and also the worst of us in that when we are in that position, we can't recognize it. And so we kind of just, take it for granted in a way that is frustrating. Yeah, man. Uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. It's Katie Mullins. Uh, well, you got a piece coming out in brevity, right? I do. Do what's it called? Um, it's called, well, it's called when we say no, and it'll be out sometime next month. Maybe. Uh, I think so. Uh, Mullins is an absolute talent. You should definitely read her work. If you Google her name, K-A-T-Y-M-U-L-L-I-N-S, you will find her website where you can find her work that's been published. She has been published in some of, I mean, not just distinguished journals, but journals that I have been repeatedly turned down by. And she is going to surprise the hell out of all of you when she ends up right there next to Ann Patchett with the Penn Faulkner Award. Yeah, I just did that to you. I'm not sorry. Uh, well, well, I'm jinxed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is the next novel that we're reading for book club? We are reading Quixote, which is Salman Rushdie's novel. Um, it's a, a modern day take on, um, oh, shoot, what's it called? Don, come on, brain. Quixote? That's it. Yeah. Um, yes. So it's a modern day take on Don Quixote and it's, it should be pretty good. Yeah, man. Uh, it's also supposed to be pretty funny. It's also I'm I'm gonna compare it to the Confederacy of Dunces, but that's just me. <laughs> just am. Uh, thanks, Mullins. Yeah, thank you, thank you for your time and for for hosting this. My thanks to Mullins for that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we plan to do it again. If you again would like to join in the Bookish Club, you can go buy a copy of Salman Rushdie's uh, Quixote, which ought to be fun. It's gonna be funny. I love Don Quixote. Who doesn't like Don Quixote? All right, now let's talk with uh, Mike Bausch, who is owner-operator of Andalini's Pizza, about the founding of Andalini's and what he's trying to do to just make sure that he can still function. Very cool. Uh, I wanted to un unpack that part where you were saying <laughs> a couple of things stuck and a couple of things didn't. Can you give me an example of one that did and one that didn't? Sure. The best example is the food truck. Okay. I'm thinking with the food truck, okay, every big company can't go out to eat lunch anymore. So we're going to be inundated with massive companies that want us to come feed their people. Uh, that didn't happen at all. I, I figured, okay, BOK Tower is going to call us, Pico Energy. All these guys are going to hit us up. Even the, because the, the white collar and the blue collar guys can't go out to lunch. Uh, I put it out there. I did a video. <laughs> Get that out, man. <laughs> Get a video. Uh, you know, say, hey, here's your time. 
were open, nothing. So then the fluke was, all right, well, just drive it to a neighborhood and maybe people will come. And then they're like, well, we could put it on individual neighborhoods, Facebook pages, which five years ago really didn't exist. People didn't do neighborhood Facebook pages that much. And then I did the first one in my neighborhood so I would know how it would go down. And it was what we thought would be an okay day was like we went to a, you know, a concert festival. Just people lined up, socially distancing six feet out and three hours of business. And we, we had another one booked immediately after we had to say to them, we, we don't know if this is just the, the luck of this one neighborhood, but we can't come to you yet. We still got a massive line. And every neighborhood's pretty much been like that, which, again, it's a Hail Mary. Why, what's so special about the food in a truck close to you where you could just drive all of five minutes more and get the full menu or get food delivered with DoorDash? So I, I, I'm happy I'm not complaining, but I, there's nothing on paper that would say that would be such a hit. No, man, I, th- I think it, it, it speaks to the power of local, though. You know, like we all very much care about this community and we care about each other. And I think that's that's what it resonated with me is when I found out that those food trucks were going to be in neighborhoods. I was like, man, for that neighborhood, that's going to that's the ice cream truck showing up. You know what I mean, it's and uh, even at the the place where I work during the day, uh, the City Flex Towers, it's a big deal that the Andalini's truck shows up to sell slices. Uh, I wanted to go from there to uh, what was the most difficult part about the transition for you as an operator and small business owner? Oh, it's so much. There's, it's an extremely emotionally taxing thing to put people on furlough. You know, I've never even said the word layoff in my professional career. What's not even thought about it. And here it is all of the industry has to do it. The, the, I guess the only thing that's a, not a saving grace, but at least makes me feel not so horrible about it, is that the, we're the only ones. Everyone had to. I mean, Del Posto, arguably one of the finest restaurants in America, has a staff of like 400 for one restaurant, and they're laying them off. Right? One of the most successful restaurants in America. Just There's only... so, But it's horrible. You know, the guilt sets in, and then you're just wanting to do right by everyone and so it was the uncertainty of the moment as well of and it's still an uncertain time but man to go back to that to march 16th it's like okay it looks like stuff's gonna get shut down what does shut down mean i don't know what does this mean no one knows it's all speculation everyone's flying blind the world is starting to close one by one at different iterations and at different rates who will come to the restaurants? Well, because we were down significantly as it was. So then when people came out in force over the weekend, it felt great. But for those first four days, you know, you're thinking, okay, I don't think the world wants to. I don't. The one thing that saved me from just feeling like absolute crap was the thought that society doesn't want to exist without restaurants. Not that my restaurant's anything special, but. I could see some restaurants closing if we represent the culture of Tulsa, which I believe we do along with many other restaurants. I don't believe Tulsa wants us to not exist after this, you know, bump in the road. So whatever's 
has to get done, we'll figure a way to do it. And and knowing that that's what it is, and we're lifers, and we're gonna plug through, made me feel there's there's no way. What's what's the point of having money if you don't have restaurants and society and culture to go to with it? So that was my saving grace in my back of my head of what gave me a some level of stability that week. Talking with Mike Bosch, owner-operator of Andalini's Pizzeria here in uh, the Tulsa Metro. I got to know Andalini's uh, at the Cherry Street location in college. And I was asked, you know, like, okay, what, what's the best pizza that, that you've had in the city? And, and people would throw out chains and whatnot and be like, no, nah, it's, it's Andalini's. And why is it Andalini's? And I couldn't really give an honest answer other than gourmet pizza that I love. So I'm going to throw it to you. What do I tell people now when I tell them my favorite pizza and I'm not able to accurately articulate what I love most about it because I do. I mean, the 14-inch pepperoni pizza with an order garlic knots, and if I'm there picking it up, carry out, I'm going to have probably a, a, a local beer of some sort because you keep them on tap, and I'm going to have a great day. So uh, give me what I what what it is that I need to say from a technical standpoint about why I love my pizza. Very cool. Here's the elevator pitch of Andalini's. We are unique takes on Italian classics. We're not trying to be New York style pizza or any other style of pizza. I call it Tulsa style pizza because it's made with an Oklahoma flour and has a New York ingenuity of the fermentation with a more California-esque approach to integration of ingredients and toppings. So with all that being said, it's a very unique one-of-a-kind style. The, the, the softness of the bread while still having a chew is a very rare uh, taste profile for, for a pizza. Additionally, we are very good at making pizza, but we don't take ourselves that seriously. And that's what you typically see when you see gourmet pizzas. Some weird, obnoxiously long wide list that doesn't really correlate to the brand. And then it's a lot of talk in a badge where it might have a bunch of toppings, but they don't really go together. We don't seek to be pretentious. You could have the best blue collar pepperoni pizza, or you could have a really avant-garde uh, roasted vegetable pizza with us. And we're going to make sure both are done well with an onslaught of toppings. And we're not going to half-ass any part of it. We're going to make the best possible pizza and then just, do it at the cheapest price we possibly can, which people ding us for being expensive, and we're genuinely the most affordable pizza in Oklahoma because we have a 20-inch, and at 20 inches, to pillows of four 10-inch pizzas. So it feeds like eight people under sometimes 25 bucks, and I can't go to McDonald's and feed eight people for under, you know, 40 bucks. Well, and to... Uh, to I want to defend the, the price point as well because I say I, I, I pay I pay what it costs to have good pizza. And you, you hit on, I think, what I love most is you talked about the chew and that taste profile. I'm going, yes, there it is. That's what I can't really get it because I don't, you know, I do this. I don't make pizzas. I don't understand the technology or the science behind it. But how do you get into knowing all of that? I mean, is your family uh, like a... Pizzeria? Like, how does Mike Bosch become one of the more successful uh, just individual operators of a pizza franchise in the nation? Uh, our, my story is very unique and odd in that 
yeah, I loved pizza when I was a kid, but I also have a soul, so that doesn't really make me that special. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of people that love pizza. I, the, the quick version is I was um, in California about to go to law school. I had done the Marines as an officer candidate school and found out I had juvenile diabetes, so I could no longer be in the Marine Corps as an officer. As a result, law school wasn't going to be paid for. When I went to my first day of law school, I said, this sucks and it's not for me. My brother, who is 15 years older than me and vice president of Alamo Rent-A-Car at the time, had been transferred here with, who had yet to become, Kathy Taylor and Bill Lovek, her husband, who was the CEO of Alamo Rent-A-Car, National Rent-A-Car. And there was all these companies that came here in 2004, Verizon, Capital One, Alamo, National, Honeywell, and... As a result, my brother said, hey, do you want to take this bonus money I'm getting to move here and open up a pizzeria? Or actually, he didn't even say that, open a restaurant. And we didn't know what we would open. We thought maybe an Italian market, maybe something that uh, like a German beer hall, like Castler Hall is now. And then opening in Owasso, we just thought, well, what's the most obvious answer here? It's like pizza. There's We can just do that. We both work pizzerias. And our first pizza was good. It was good for a suburb. But it wasn't great. And then I just said, okay, well, all the effort I would have put into the Marine Corps and into law school, I'm going to do to learn everything about marketing and everything about pizza. I have a collegiate degree from St. Mary's College of Political Science, not exactly a business major or a cooking major or a hospitality major. And uh, took all of it, started going to conferences like Pizza Expo, learned about it. And then I met a guy named Tony Gimignani who has a, who, uh, went the first American to go to get a collegiate degree in pizza, which is held in Italy with some translators. He saw the need for it and brought two translators back and did a class for like five guys in California. And I asked to be one of those guys. And I was the youngest one in the room and I was very much out of place because all the other guys were like heavy hitters in the industry. I was lucky that I asked. I've gotten a lot out of my life out of just asking. And then I learned everything I was doing wrong, changed the recipe, and instantly had, after a week, had, you know, done the same amount of hours as a full-blown college-level course in pizza-making. And then went with Tony to compete in Italy and started to just build on the knowledge. And now I speak with uh, Tony and compete, uh, you know, every year or so with um, Tony Gimignani. And I'm also the uh, vice president of the World Pizza Champion. So I know a lot about the industry at this point. I would, I am, as pizza as Tulsa famous as I am which isn't saying much I am just as equally pizza famous I'm not like Ohio famous I'm just if someone's in the pizza industry they probably know me and I probably know them if they've been around for a while it's a very tight-knit group and that's how I built on this learned more got better at pizza and then developed our own brand developed our own thing and we got a lot of solid reviews and uh last year TripAdvisor, based solely off reviews, named us as one of the top 10 pizzerias in America. Again, only on the algorithm of how many positive reviews we've gotten. Well, I mean, you, you say being Tulsa famous is not that big a deal. I would I would, I would push back against that. Uh, I'm very proud. Uh, well, it's a big deal for us. I'm not, right. I'm not knocking Tulsa. I'm just okay. Saying, uh, no. <laughs> oh, I love Tulsa. Uh, I, I would never live anywhere else in the world. Well, and I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying give yourself more of a, more credit. No, I'm saying give yourself more credit. That's what I'm saying. Uh, because it's one of the things I get to take with me when I leave the city. Uh, you know, I 
go to TU, I go to OU, or I went, I should say, I have uh, degrees from both. But the thing that I missed most when I lived in Norman was your pizza. Like, <laughs> and I would tell people, yeah, you don't have, we don't, you don't have pizza like we have back home in Tulsa. And then, do I have this right? You get the world champion pizza acrobat on your staff? I, I have a, so yes, I do. I am, I joined the world pizza champions in 2009 with Tony Germignani inviting me who started that team in, in 2000. And as time went on, I have a, my kitchen manager at the time, she was just a regular back house employee named Tara Hatton. And she started doing better and better. And I challenged her to, to learn some pizza tricks. She did well with it. And then I brought her to Vegas with me and she did horrible her first time out competing but she was around all the best guys in the world at pizza acrobatics and i would uh i've done a lot of baking competitions but i'm not allowed to bake anymore in america at these contests because i write for pizza today magazine which um holds this event so i now if i compete in baking it's done only in another country Mm. but back to tara she then went the next year and scored very well in the preliminaries won the preliminary round and then went to London in November with me. And uh, we both did the baking challenge. She did the acrobatic challenge and she was uh, voted the best at that contest. And she's the first female to ever win uh, an acrobatic competition. And she works at Angelini Arrow, and she's also a member of my world pizza champion team. Right on, man. Again, if you're a world champion, anything, <laughs> I mean, in anything, uh, it's one of the toughest things, uh, quite literally in the world to do. And that's very cool to, to know that that person is on staff for you and works in the Metro area at the Broken Arrows and Alinis. Uh, one of the things I think small business owners can learn from you, um, is how well you market and how well received those marketing campaigns are, uh, you know, I, I work in sports media. A big part of what I do is is branding. But I, I'm I am myself drawn to your email newsletter. I find myself drawn to when you're on the radio. I find myself drawn to the story. What tips would you be willing to divulge to small business owners, especially right now, who are trying to let people know what they're doing and how they're doing it? Sure. There's the some basic rules that I mean I didn't invent is have a story to tell. And additionally, don't market in form. So I like all things I do to come off as unsolicited advertisement. Even when I'm emailing someone, I'm never going to say, vote for us. I'll be like, if you want to vote, here it is. It's the same difference, but one doesn't come across as pushy and, and uh, you know, creepy sales marketing wise. The other, even like, this hour brought to you by Andalini. I would never do that because who cares? Why? It just sounds like this dummy spent money <laughs> as opposed to someone who's like, hey, what are you guys up to? Well, we're, you know, I'm really stoked about the truck. We're doing this. And this is what we got going on. Uh, I'm liking, this is another restaurant I like. Just being a human is the key with most marketing now. And then that's the content side of it. The metrics play a much larger role than they used to in terms of how you key, you know, key things in with Google Analytics, Facebook, and there's a lot of science to that that 
it would be hard to digress here, but having someone on your team that really knows, you know, how to to interact with people. And that's a big part of social media now because it's just interactions. If, if you're responding to reviews, Google pushes you up higher. If you're responding on Instagram, more people want to talk to you. So that's where it is now. I can get I can get the most done out of an email blast if I want a, a, a shot of adrenaline for whatever is going on than anything else because they've signed in, they've opted in, I've never paid for anything there. And acquiring a robust, solid need to be on your email list and then popping out an email that's somewhat, you know, palatable and not overtly salesman-like can move the needle. I was drawn to the last one that the say the last one I was really interested in was the the Super Bowl special that you ran, and I took full advantage of that because you're also offering me value as, as a customer, right? And that was balancing that. I have to assume is difficult because you want to you you know you have a good product, you want people to pay what that product cost and what it cost to to fund the operation, but you also want to be able to include them. And, you know, I, I would say what uh, your good fortune, right? And like one of the things that I really love about what I do is being able to talk with people like yourself about what you're doing, but that's what I get out of it, right? And being able to try to give that to other people in the form of a podcast is something I can do. What leads you to understanding that you can run this special versus that special? What leads you to the business decisions that allow for you to be able to handle perhaps a campaign not running as well as you think. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack on there. I think everything is a, a very tactical decision of first and foremost asking the question, let's say for the Super Bowl. Okay, we want to we want to get some Super Bowl uh, business. Well, these are the, the customers not going to be coming into our restaurants that day. We're not a sports bar. So our best bet is a pickup order. Okay, what can we do to make sure that they choose us over someone else we could do an added value. There's a lot to be said about added value versus just straight discounting. And if you are going to discount, I do it once in a blue moon. If you train the customer to discount, it's a very precarious thing to your point about, you know, you don't want to just sully the product. And what I mean by training the customer to discount, I don't mean that in a condescending way. JC Penney is a great example of someone who as a marketing effort has trained their customer to only come to them for a discount. So they had a thing where if you go to JCPenney today, it'll say Levi's, $35 for a pair of Levi's, marked down from 55 So that's the win. They always are, oh, wow, it's such a great deal. Now, interestingly enough, Levi's in like 2015 had Ellen DeGeneres as their spokesperson at a Super Bowl ad, not related to my story Super Bowl-wise, but, and they said from here on out, just the lowest price possible. Don't worry about coupons. Don't worry about discounts. We're just going to give you the absolute lowest price. And those Levi's jeans became $32. Not marked, not marked down, just $32. And they saw their market share just completely destroyed. Just dwindled. It was an incredibly dumb decision for them. Because they trained their customer who is looking for the best deal to come and say, oh, look how much money I'm saving by having this price. So that's not what I ever want to do to my customer. I don't want them to say, yeah, but what's your special? I want the pizza is special, not the <laughs> price. The price is not the star of the show. The pizza is the star of the show. 
and the second you overly discount or have that be your mandate, it's it's very precarious. So I want the, the food to be the story and the price to be secondary. And if I'm going to do like, a, hey, here's a big combo for this one day for this one event, fine. And that way we can at least save our ass because Super Bowl people will think, oh, you're going to do so much business on that day. It's just like right now. I'm losing my ass because there's no diamond. There's no diamond right now. So people, if they see a line of cars in my, at, at, at Louis, don't get me wrong, I'm extremely thankful that we have a line of cars. But if you see eight cars outside Andalines, you're like, oh, crap, they're killing it. You saw eight people inside Andalines, you say, wow, this is a dead restaurant. So it's it's hard to – we're not making money right now. Everyone's losing their ass. We're just losing our ass slightly less than the worst situation. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Uh, talking with Mike Bosch, owner-operator of Andalini's Pizzeria, which is my favorite pizza in the Tulsa metro area. Uh, Mike, one more question for you before we get out. Um, well, I say that. Two more questions. What is it about where we are right now that you think we can learn as small business owners or even as uh, restaurateurs? What is the thing that you think we can learn from all of this? There's a lot to believe from this. There's a, as a society, as marketing, as restaurants, as pizzerias, there's a lot of lessons that are going to come out of this. Some have yet to come to fruition. First and foremost, as a society, we've learned that people, you're going to see a lot more businesses based with people at home. Because this was a trial run for people like, I don't know, do we actually operate with everyone at home? And then people found out, oh shit, we can. So there's going to be a lot of businesses that switch to purely at home. From my perspective as my business, I don't know if eight months from now, like you would have seen a no smoking section in the 90s, if you're going to see a social distancing section at a restaurant. <laughs> I laugh too, but I'm like, that's highly possible. If there is not, if when, if when we get out of this, if there is not an overwhelming amount of security that the customer feels, there's going to be issues. Uh, what we learn now is, you know, how to how to handle a furlough, how to bring back staff, how to lose all your inventory and start back from nothing, how to become everyone's getting better at curbside and and pick up a delivery because necessity is the mother of invention. And we've learned more about that. So I think you'll see more of that. I think everyone's curbside game is gonna be way up by the time this is all done. But where and then you're gonna see the people who wanna who live to be restaurant owners are gonna still be around. The people who dip their foot in the pool are kind of like, yeah, I like it, but it's it's kind of hard. They're not gonna live through this. So you're gonna see a lot of restaurants taper off, and the hardcore ones are gonna still be there, and and it's gonna be an equalizer in that sense. Uh, last question for you is. Uh... Have your hours of operation, your dates, any of those things changed for those of us that live in the metro? And for those of us that don't, uh, as people, I, I'm always amazed listening to this around the country, can they still buy gift certificates that they can give away or to help support the restaurant? Yeah, great. Uh, if you go to our website, andopizza.com, there's a swag section where you can buy gift cards. Right now, 20% of any gift card purchase is going to go to my employee fund. Uh, for my staff, for anyone who has an extenuating circumstance or need, that will we be giving out uh, checks to staff to help them stay whole. We also give out slices and have a food pantry. So we're trying to do our best for staff. But the gift cards help with that. 
And if you, it's an actual physical gift card. So if you want it sent to someone else, just uh, email us. Hey, I ordered this gift card after you order it, but I want it to go here. It goes right to me, and I'll make sure it goes where it needs to go. Additionally, our we kind of close our gelateria and our fine dining restaurant across the road just for now because it just didn't make sense to have those items open. Uh, our five Andalini's locations are still open, and we changed the hours to go till 8 p.m. Sunday through Thursday until 9 p.m. Friday and Saturday. Uh, so, and we have that, uh, the best menu is on DoorDash, which is a direct partner. I think some other meal delivery services are using us, but we don't, we never verified it. They just call it in and order it like normal. So that's your best way to get Andalini's during this crisis. Right on. Uh, Mike Bosch, owner operator of Andalini's Pizzeria here in the Tulsa Metro, who is doing a great job, uh, even in this crisis. I understand losing your ass, but I also understand uh, the value and the community. And man, uh, it makes me happy. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for doing this. And thanks for so much for continuing to try to stay open and having that just entrepreneur spirit that has got you to where you are and hopefully get you further and further along. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike.